Welcome to the Eric Schlein Podcast, where personal development platitudes can get the hell out. Completely devoted to ontology, breaking down distinctions of human consciousness as an access to enhancing performance. Here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is the Eric Schlein Podcast, a space for your bullshit personal development platitudes where I break down ontological principles and distinctions to help you enhance the areas of your life that matter to you. Today we have on a wonderful guest, Monica Ortega. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you've, you you wear quite a few hats. You have this uh, YouTube travel show, Monica Goes. You have a book, Power Pivoting. So tell us a little bit about who you are, your story, and we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, the amount of hats. I'm originally from Michigan and I got a degree in musical theater. So I lived in Nashville for a bit, trying to be a country singer. I actually got a lot of acting work, which brought me to LA. So I did some acting and singing in cover bands. And then I realized I really just love emceeing and hosting. I emcee a lot of big music festivals. So out of that, I created my own travel show, Monica Goes, to be a host and combine my love of facing my fears and doing crazy adventures. And then since then, I, yeah, in quarantine, I decided to write a book, The Power of Pivoting, since we're all pivoting right now. <laughs> tell, tell us about your book. Yeah, absolutely. I never planned on writing a book. I thought, I can't write a book. I'm in the middle of the story. And then I realized maybe my middle is somebody else's beginning and there can be some lessons in there that people have learned. So it's a lot to do with my divorce, some of my personal journeys and just the lessons that I've learned along the way. And as much as it's through my eyes and through my journey, I really do want it to be a book for everybody to help them, whether it's pivoting in career, relationships, global crisis, all the things that are going on. Mental health, there's a lot of mental health stuff in there as well. So hopefully it can help some people. So let's unpack a lot. You just said a lot. So let's unpack yeah. some of that. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, so tell us about your divorce and the experience, what that was like for you. Yeah, so I think growing up in the Midwest, I had this idea of how life is supposed to look and the boxes you're supposed to check. And I was getting to that age of 29, the ripe old age of 29. And I met my ex-husband. He was very charming, very outgoing. And immediately I was like, okay, this is the guy. And then two months in, all of the red flags popped up, but I was ignored. I'm like, no, I'm ready. I'm ready to get married. This is it. And against my gut and Against everything I should have done, I married him and it was a pretty rough time. He was pretty emotionally abusive. I shut down. I became a very depressed shell of a person. And the travel show came out of that because I realized, one, I have to take care of my mental health and I'm not in a good place. And two, here I had just married somebody that didn't like any of the things that I liked. I'd ask the big questions before getting married. And then as soon as the rings went on, it was like, just kidding. I don't like travel. And so I thought if I'm not going to get that out of my marriage, I have to get it out of my career. And so that's where the travel show came in. But yeah, it was four years in about three and a half years in, uh, he finally confessed that he'd been cheating the entire time and everybody's story is different. And I, I realized that that's a horrible thing for most people. But in my mind, I literally went, oh, thank God I can leave. Yeah. And I was so stoked. And I had a new apartment in a week. Like I was so happy to be done. Obviously there's a lot of emotions that came after that initial relief, but yep. yeah. And then I thought if I can use this for something good and to help other people use their second chance to step back and ask themselves what they really want out of life, things I should have asked at the beginning before I even met this person, 
yeah, it can just really set you up for success. And it doesn't have to be such a horrible traumatic thing. There can be a lot of good stuff out of it too, which there has been. So there's no regrets in my mind. So what was the, what was the, you know, belief system you had around relationships that had you ignore all these red flags kind of, because you seem like a pretty confident, intelligent woman. And here you are going with someone who clearly doesn't have a lot in common with you. And there's all these red flags. What was the belief system you were pressing up against that sort of had you disconnect from reality, essentially living in unreality? Yeah, it's honestly, it's something I still deal with, but I've gotten better at it is I never believed that I could have a career and a relationship. So yeah. every time my acting career started doing well, I had it in my mind that I was just going to be single forever. So I think I started seeing some success in the career and I thought, oh, I'm going to be alone forever. And I right. wanted to get married and have kids. So here comes this person. And it was like, okay, this is my chance. And instead of asking myself, like, does this fit in with what I actually want? I went along with the path that I thought I was supposed to be on. It's amazing how when people construct this belief about the way life should be, that when they start having something they want, the way they their brain will kill it off and self-sabotage yeah. it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's that you either have a fear of failure or a fear of success, and sometimes both. Or you can even go take it deeper than that and say that it that that machinery, that part of the mind that's stuck to that belief system, it'll kill it off regardless. So whether it's a fear of whatever, it may not even be a fear. It might just be a survival tactic. It's like your mind thinks it's going to die if, if it does something different than what it's you know, pre-wired to do. It's really interesting how, yeah, how and it, that it's works. It's so interesting how we, we get so attached to those thoughts that we actually go against our gut because yeah. our gut always knows. I knew deep down that this was not a good thing, but I looked for validation in other places and who he was on the outside. Everybody's like, this guy's amazing. And even though in my gut, I'm like, he's not. <laughs> Right. you move forward. So. You know, it reminds me people, I don't know if you're religious or not. It's easy to see people who have a religious bent that's different than yours, whether you're not religious or you are religious and they're stuck in this dogma. And of course you can see it, but they can't see it. And you go, wow, how could someone be that irrational and that stupid and crazy yet human beings we have our own religion for everything. You could say you almost were stuck in a religion called what it means to be in a relationship or what it means to be in a, in a successful career. And then all the rules and boundaries that get created with that. And then you don't realize that you're the one that made it up. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's so funny too, because we all get stuck in this, like caring so much what other people think, but the truth is nobody does because we're all in our own heads, freaking out about what other people think. Nobody and gives so a shit. It's once I realized that, and I got to make my own choices. And again, it was not necessarily choices that were made for me, but then I had this clean slate and got to ask myself what I wanted. It was like, why aren't people doing that at the beginning? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people aren't doing that at the beginning? I think we're programmed a lot from the time that we're kids of how we should think, how our lives should go. I always say like shitting is the worst world word in the word, world and shouldn't should just be wiped out of vocabulary. But yeah, I think should as it, a kid, should it, should it be wiped out? It, it should be. <laughs> See what you did there. I did. <laughs> yeah, I think as kids, we, we start forming these thoughts of how our lives should go, and then we stick to it against our detriment. What are, What are some of the prevailing belief systems that you think get, you know, wired into children from or conditioned to children at a very young age that you see has a negative impact on on people's growth and upbringing? 
Yeah, for me, and this is nothing against my parents because they never meant to put this stuff on me, but they weren't necessarily like the most adventurous people. They're, they're outdoorsy, my mom is, but there was a lot of fear that I was taught growing up. And so I thought- Like, like I what? To, like what? Just sneaking out to go running because I'm a girl and it's bad. Just little mm. things like that, that even if it's not our parents, it's society telling us. And then you're sneaking out running and you're convinced everybody's evil and like all these things are traveling to places that aren't safe. How did that have an impact on you being a woman? Like your experience of being a woman, how did, how did that impact you growing up? It was a combination of both. I definitely had times where I would do dumb stuff to rebel. Like I remember in Chicago going for a run at two in the morning. It's okay, come on. Like, like that's kind of dumb. Yeah. That's dumb. Yeah. I, mean, I won't go for a run at two in the morning in Chicago. Yeah, exactly. But then there's other times that I think it's good to push out of those boundaries a little bit. I think it's actually created a really good balance in me because I have a healthy amount of fear now, but I've also been through enough things to realize that it's okay to push out of that comfort zone as well. Yeah. Interesting. So you talk about divorce in the book, but what are, what is other, th- and you, man- you mentioned a few other things. So let's, what's another topic that you think is really interesting that you go into? In the uh, book? Yeah. Mental health is just, it's a huge part. So and- let's talk about that. Yeah. I, so I'm a big advocate. One thing I want to do is talk to high school kids about the transition from high school to college because I was not prepared. And I grew up in a time when people didn't talk about mental health or mental illness or depression or anxiety. So for me, it was such a shock going into college or going into the real world. And I fell apart. I crumbled. I suffered from depression and ended up moving home at this first semester and felt like a failure and felt like I can't ever deal with a change again because I'm just going to crack and I really had to teach myself from the beginning how to deal with these different emotions that had come up and I'm so glad that people talk about this stuff now but they just didn't as much when I was growing up yeah um yeah that was a big part was depression and then I had a panic attack after my divorce it was interesting because actually he told me that he'd been cheating I literally was in shock went to work was telling everyone because I thought it was hilarious. I was like in shock and then collapsed and had a full-on panic attack, which had never happened to me before. And I suddenly had anxiety, which I had no idea how to deal with. So yeah. there's sort of the two ends of the spectrum that if you don't know it's coming, it's, it can be terrifying. Yeah, I think there's a lot more acceptance to these kinds of conversations too, even in the last 10 years. Yeah. You know, I, rem- I remember... I think so. I think one of the impacts of not talking about things, whether it's mystery around it, is we talked about coming up with belief systems earlier. People come up with all kinds of funky things about mental health when no one's willing to talk about it, when it's that taboo in yeah. society. And I just even remember wanting to help people who were struggling with anxiety issues, depression issues. And some of the stuff that would come out of their mouth, mm-hmm. I would just be like, who the hell told you that? Yeah. And then I would see both extremes. Like I would see people that would say, clearly, clearly we're struggling with shit. And they'd say, it's fine. It's no big deal. And you'd look at them and be like, you're, you're like, to me, it's almost like if someone can't walk in a wheelchair and they're trying to walk and keep falling over and be like, no, I can walk. It's fine. I'll run a marathon. Dude, you're in a wheelchair. You're not running a marathon. Yeah. And then I saw the other extreme too, which was almost like so resigned to the condition that they just accepted that's the way it's always going to be. Yeah, exactly. And if, and if you and if I showed them a resource saying, "Hey, here's a program. People reliably get free of their anxiety after three or three, four or five days," 
they'd be like, that's impossible. I've been in therapy for 10 years working on it. So that's impossible. And it's like, okay, great. I won't help you then. Yeah. And so I, I used to see those extremes and I find now, at least in my experience, and maybe you have similar or different, but in my experience, people are much more open to talking about the nuances. Yeah, which I'm so glad about this because it was interesting to me when I had gone through, and I do say in the book, I I don't have chronic depression or anxiety. It's been very like certain moments in my life. Uh Um, So I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert. I can't speak. Yeah, nothing nothing here is medical advice. We're just talking about our experiences. Uh, But it was interesting when I went home during the semester, I found out so many of my friends from high school had also had the same experience, but none of us were talking about it. Yeah. And I think especially because we'd had good high school experiences, we left on this high note, nobody wanted to feel like a failure, but had we all been talking about it, we would have been like, oh my gosh, thank goodness you get what I'm talking about. So I'm really happy that it's become more of an open conversation and I'm very open book about it. And I, it's a generational thing because some of my family's been like, maybe don't talk about that. And people should talk about this stuff. There's, what is that? principle that anything you can't talk about runs you. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And if you take a look, it's true. I look in my life and the things that I'm not able to or willing to talk about with people end up controlling me. Yeah. And I have found too, that the more I open up that dialogue with friends, so many people are suffering from things and they don't talk about it. And then if I bring it up, they're like, Oh, thank goodness. Somebody gets it. And I'm like, yes, you can always talk to me. I have friends that call me all the time in the middle of panic attacks and different things, but you're right. I had a friend that was very close to committing suicide and he said, oh, I'm fine. It'll never happen again. I'm good now. And I thought, no, you have to deal with it because you never know what could happen tomorrow. Like I could be going along great and then a parent dies or something happens. And if you haven't worked on those mental muscles, it can be really dangerous to not know what to do when that happens again, when you get depressed or have anxiety. So I think Mm -hmm. it's really important to be proactive about those things so that if it comes up, what to do, or you have an idea. Totally, totally. I, I've sent many people to different resources and programs and, and I always tell people, I was like, do this stuff when there is no terrible issues going on. And it's sad to me because I've shared certain kinds of ontological work with people for years. And then 10 years later, they're dealing with something and it's that thing I told you about 10 years ago, like you not sound like a dick, but you wouldn't be in this position right now. And then they do it and go, thank God, or I wish I did this 10 years ago. I'm like, yeah, like it's kind of how it works. But uh, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say one of the big things that I, I do for myself that I try to help people with the book is I create like a mental health toolkit is what I call it. And I just make notes of things that help me when I feel depressed or when I feel anxious, just on small scale stuff. Mm -hmm. So that when something starts spiraling in my brain, I have a list of things that I can try to pull myself out before it gets to a really bad place. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't remember where I read this, but they, they did some study on when people take action. And it turns out that only 3% of people will take action around something drastic when they don't have to. Essentially 97% of people only take a drastic action when their circumstances call for it. Yeah. Otherwise it gets put on the back burner. I'll do it another time. And that's kind of goes back before. It's like, why do people stay in bad marriages? Why do people stay in jobs they hate? Why do people suffer from anxiety, but it's not bad enough where they can still live day to day. And it's they're they can most 97% of people are willing to be fine with something, even if they're not vital and alive around it. 
That's sad, well, that's sad to me. Too, but like mental illness, it's finally becoming less taboo to talk about, yes. but it's like any other illness. It's like people that don't work out that accept that their weight's just going up five pounds a month until they have a heart attack or until right. something happens. And they're like, oh, I should get this in check. We all know we should be healthy. And now people are starting to do it with their brains and going, okay, I need to take care of this before it gets to a bad place. Yeah, I think we're starting to see more of that because we certainly went through a time where, you know, the whole end the stigma conversation, which I'm all for, but I found that the end the stigma conversation, at least at the beginning, and I'm noticing it changing, at least from my anecdotal experience, was very similar to the fat acceptance movement where it's, you're really overweight. I'm just a fat person. That's how I am. It's no, you have a metabolic issue and there's ways to correct it. And if you want to put in the work and don't get angry at me because you're fat. And so it's, yes, love your body, love, love where you're at. But if you're sick, like you shouldn't love that you're sick. Yeah. And so I think this, this whole trend of, like, you know, intentionally having models on magazines that were obese was just like the most ridiculous thing. It's like, you're glorifying yeah. illness. And I just remember with the whole end the stigma thing, it's like, I'm, I have depression and I'm going to have to live with it the rest of my life. And that's just how I am. So not really actually. But you can yeah, tell it to yourself. There's such a big spectrum too, right? Because there's the people that literally can't function and maybe need medication and need therapy all the time. Yeah. And, and then there's people, I think more of the average person that just suddenly has a little bit of anxiety or a little bit of depression, but they can deal with it if they know how. But if they right. just shove it aside as like a bad mood or like too much caffeine or something, it's, you're not really helping yourself because it's only going to keep happening. And you need to know what to do. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I, I think people were not, I think the next sort of evolution in our culture is yes, accept people where they're at and accept yourself where you're at, but just having the awareness that there are resources out there that do work. Yeah. And I just remember when I was younger, I, I had, you know, mental health issues and I was struggling with anxiety and depression. And I just remember like, I would, you know, go to a talk therapist and it was like bullshit. Like I got nothing out of it. And it just, maybe I felt good for a day and then I was back to where it was, or I would take an anti-anxiety medication would numb it a little bit, but it really wouldn't deal with it. And I'm someone who likes to get to the root cause of things. So yeah. it, it, in, in my world, just intuitively, I, I felt like there was something else that I wasn't dealing with. Mm-hmm. And then of course, when I discovered those resources, it was like people I knew who I was friends with. I realized why I was friends with them is because they were like giving in to the depression that we all had like our own little pity fest. And when I got better, they didn't believe me. Yeah. It was threatening to them. And I'm yeah, like, oh. and, and what works for one person isn't going to work for somebody else. Of right? course, everyone's in a different space. Look, if someone, if I, I, I have people that, that assume just because I share my story that I hate therapists, that I hate medication. So yeah. Look, if, if I'm not, I've never once said that, but people imply that. And it's, I think it's like what you said, if we all have our own path, we all have our own journey. And look, if you taking medic, psych, a psychiatric medication is the difference between you being able to like, even have a basic psychological baseline to function, yeah. then, then I'm all for it. It's to me, I'm, I'm tool agnostic, whatever empowers you, whatever forwards your life. That's yeah. all I give a shit about. And, but I would say that when you only know about a pill or when you only know about talk therapy, which I think are the two predominant tools in our culture, it becomes when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And then it's, oh, I think you need help. I think you should go to therapy. Oh, I think you should get put on medication. And I would say, I think for the most part, that's not usually the most effective thing to do. It's just one tool in the tool set. 
And yeah, what and again, about that? I like to have a lot of different things to try, right? Because yeah. one day maybe going for an angry run is going to help me. And maybe the next day it's crying and eating everything. I don't know, but <laughs> having a couple options, but yeah, it was the same thing for me. I had a therapist that wanted to put me on medication and I said, no, this isn't my norm. Like I know that. And I'm yeah. very much like a list and a to-do person. So I started keeping a calendar and listing good days, bad days, and unbearable days, and just trying different stuff until there were no unbearable days. So that's how my brain works. Like I need to- I love that. Yeah, I love that. I think part of of the issue, what you're speaking to, is that the field of psychology is, do you you know who Charlie Munger is? Do you know who that is? No. So he's he's Warren Buffett's vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Oh, okay. And he talks about this a lot, that- he loves the world of psychology and he loves reading books on psychology and understanding the human condition. But he talks about how terrible, how psychology in terms of the schooling for a psychologist is one of the worst kinds of schooling because Mm. he said that psychology, you to learn psychology, you need to learn it on top of something else. Yeah. You know, it's, it's actually very similar to ontology with, which is what this podcast is about. Mm -hmm. If you just study the human experience, but you don't actually have anything to put it on. Mm-hmm. You're just going to be talking in platitudes and there's not going to be any real application. Yeah. The, pr- the problem in psychology is you end up learning a lot of platitudes and models, but if you don't have any other background, if you don't have a background in philosophy or a background in coaching or a background in something where you're applying it to the human condition, you, uh, it's al- it's almost like the, the amount of psychologists that go into a room, like a talk therapy room, and they're broken themselves, and all and the entire goal is just to get you less broken to get to where they're at. And that's not really, I don't, I don't think that was the original intention of psychology. So when you only have this one way of looking at the world through whatever psychological models you learned in school, it's not going to necessarily make you that good of a therapist. And then you look at the statistics for talk therapy and it's 30% of the time it's effective, 30% of the time uh, it's harmful. And then 40% of the time, yeah, and 40% of the time it does nothing. But the fact that you have an entire profession that's in the business of helping someone's psychological state and 30% of the time it'll actually harm people, there's an issue going on there. Yeah, and you know... I'm, I'm a big proponent for therapy, but I think you have to try different people. You have to see what works. I think I tried four or five just throughout my life that I was like, this is useless. Yep. And then it actually was my marriage counselor that post-divorce her and I got talking and, I, and she helped me a lot because she had resources because that's how I work here. Right. Do this, try this and this, this, and this. And I'm like, yes, give me something to do. And then I'm good. <laughs> but if I'm just talking, that yep. does nothing. Yeah, as it goes, going back to what I said, though, I think the evolution of the psychology industry, yeah. is it's going to be less about the individual. Look, if someone's a good talk therapist, it shouldn't matter what the personality is. They should be able to be effective with people. And, yeah. it's, and, and it's, so it's not about the individual. It's about what they're delivering, the in-between, the conversation. Mm-hmm. I, look, I look in the, the world of, I don't know, take any other profession. A good plumber can fix many different kinds of toilets. It doesn't matter if the guy's a dick or not. Yeah. And a good ontological coach doesn't really matter what their, what their personality is like. And if you'd ever want to actually get a beer with them or not, they're generally pretty damn effective if there's good ones, there's bad ones too. Yeah. So I, I think that in the, the talk therapy world, I see some of these people and I'm like, how do you have a job? 
Yeah. So I think this, the standards are not up to par. And again, that goes back to the schooling and there's all, all of that. So I think we are on the forefront of a, a breakthrough in the culture of mental health. I think we can. Yeah, I think that. also because it's become more open to people, they're not just going to their therapist. Totally. Yeah. Everybody else they're totally fine with. I feel like people are getting more open to yes. talk about this stuff with their family and their friends. So if their therapist sucks, but they're getting good advice somewhere else, they might realize, hey, I need a new therapist. If I had to make a prediction, I think the future of therapy is because I think, look, I think if you're going to your friends or family as replacement for therapy, then there's an issue with therapy, right? Yeah. But I've had good therapy before. There's a therapist I've used before that when I was starting my business, just helped me get laser-like focused on my business. He was great and did his job. And I wouldn't have gone to my dad or my brother. And it's nothing against my dad or my brother, except he was trained to, to, to yeah. talk to me in a certain way. And I've gotten, I've had lots of great coaches. And if I'm stuck around something and I know there's like a real block, I'm not going to go call a friend for advice. Even if I think the advice will be good. I want a, a fucking breakthrough to have some actual transformational experience. And there's a certain kind of training someone has to go through to be able to deliver that for me. So yeah, the same thing is if you hire a business coach and a year from now, your business is no better off. Obviously that coach is not the most positive thing. And the thing, and that's the thing is that's the coach's deal. Yeah. I always tell people like when I'm training coaches to, to lead programs, one of the things that I say is if you, the participants aren't generating, that's on you. That's not the per, that's not because of the participant. Yeah. And I, I've met business coaches. I'm not going to say any names, but I've met business coaches where they'll say, well, this person wasn't effective because they didn't do the work. It's a part of being a good business coach is that your clients will do the work. And if they're not yeah. doing the work, that's on you. Yeah. That's how I look at it. Yeah, I agree. Do you have any background with either taking business coaching or being a business coach? Is that something that you have a background um, Well, I worked at a company. I was a partner at a social media and brand management company, which it was interesting. I do a lot of social media for my travel show. So I, I was just- Don't you do? Right. I also teach line dancing and yeah, there's a whole bunch of weird stuff. Oh man. Uh, used to rodeo clown. I did. Yeah. I, I was more of a cheerleader in the crowd. I wasn't the one in the middle of the okay. arena, but I did used to ride a bull and sing the national anthem. Where totally was, random. where where was this? <laughs> this was at the double J ranch in Michigan. <laughs> I went there like thinking I would be like doing theater stuff. And instead I got thrown into all these cowboy things. They're like, Hey, ride a bull and sing. And I was like, sure. <laughs> was that, was that terrifying riding a bull? It was okay. He was more like a big horse. Okay. I was more scared. They threw me into stunt shows and I'm terrified of heights. So like jumping off a building was much more terrifying. I, I, yeah. If you're terrified of heights, just, there's almost nothing more terrifying other than like jumping out of an airplane. Oh my God. Jumping out of an airplane I've done. And I loved that because even you though you're afraid of heights. Yeah. You're so high up that the ground doesn't register where okay. if I'm hiking and I can see a hundred feet down and know if I fall, I'm dead. That's scarier to me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I heard that before I went and I didn't necessarily believe it until I went and then I loved it. I would definitely go again. Fast, fast. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I actually went the only place in the world where you can land in a vineyard. So I slid in and they handed me a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. Maybe I can go, go somewhere in Mexico and they can give me some shots of tequila once I'm done. There you go. Like, like yeah. good, good tequila. That's like just been, you know, like right. You know, I've never Mexico been to Mexico. Somewhere. That's somewhere I need to go for sure. I haven't, I haven't either. It's one of my places I really would like to go to. Yeah. I love good tequila too. Like really good, fine tequila is like something I'm really into. 
don't know that I've had good tequila. You probably see if you don't know, then you haven't. That's what I always yeah. tell people. If you have to think about it, you haven't. Yeah. I've even, I have it. friends who are like, I don't really know. I don't really love tequila. I'm like, okay, try this bottle and tell me you don't like tequila. And they'll be like, whoa, whoa. I've yeah. never had anything like that before. One of, like one of the coolest things at the travel show, I realized if I wasn't doing adventure travel, I would love to write about food and drinks because I love going to breweries and wineries. And I've been to some amazing distilleries. Like I went moonshine tasting and had vodka that tasted good, which nobody thinks vodka tastes good. I was good. just going to say, that's and a little mind blowing like, to me. It's smooth and you're like, this shouldn't, this shouldn't make me feel this good. I, I've, had good I've had good gin. I, I've, there's the gin that I buy that I drink neat, but yeah. uh, good vodka. Tell us, tell me about the experience of good yeah. vodka, please. Oh my gosh. It was great. It was a moonshine distillery, first moonshine distillery in Virginia. And it was so great. The owners were like straight up from the bootleg days talking <laughs> about like jail and like craziness. And they come out with this jar, this big of moonshine that strawberries have been soaking in. And it was the smoothest vodka. And then they gave us a bottle to take home. And yeah, you could literally drink it on ice. I drank a lot of quarantinis during 2020. Nice, nice. Amazing. So tell us more about your travel show. What is what is that about? Other than travel, yeah, so, obviously. Yeah, initially it started, again, as a way to get hosting jobs. I had a teacher tell me, create your dream show to get auditions. And then I fell in love with it. And it was really just me hiking and trying to be more of a face of a destination than a vlogger. I didn't want it to be like, look at me on this vacation. I wanted it to be this hike is three miles long and it's this scary. And I realized I was afraid of everything. So then it started becoming facing my fears and it was like repelling and whitewater rafting and a lot of panic attacks on camera. <laughs> but, but it was great because at the end of each one, I love facing fears because you're just fired up afterward and there's nothing quite like it. And it's been fun. It's been six years. There's over a hundred episodes. So how does the, how has the experience of yourself transformed through facing your fears with things like whitewater rafting and doing maybe some scary hikes? How has that impacted your life and the experience of yourself outside of? Those oh my things? gosh, a thousand percent. First of all, like I said, I started the show when I was married. And so doing those things took me out of that world. And I fell in love with that. And then after the divorce, I really threw myself into the travel show. And it's, it's taught me that I can handle more than I think I can, whether that be mm. physically in an adventure or emotionally outside of it, but you're just stronger than you think. And there's something about facing a fear that you can't be anxious. You can't be depressed because you have right. to focus. You're thinking of your next handhold or the next white rap, white water rapid you're going to handle. And I've realized some things I love and some things I'm like, I did it once and I'm good. Check it off. <laughs> but yeah. it's been really cool to inspire other people because I always say like your comfort zone might be going out to dinner by yourself. Like maybe you don't ever want to do anything outdoors, but it's really just pushing it that one extra step. It's like you listen to fitness people say, do one extra rep. It's the same sort of thing in your personal life when you're breaking out of a comfort zone or facing a fear, take it a little bit further than you think you can. And so my confidence has gone up, just my ability to handle the unknown change, all of those things that I used to be deathly afraid of. Now I'm like, bring it on. Cause I know the feeling afterward is euphoric and I know I can be stronger. So I love it. But what I'm hearing is even when that euphoria dies, there's still a, a shift in your natural experience of yourself and your psychological baseline and, and all of that. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. Yeah, there's something about when you push yourself and the pride afterward, even when, like you said, the euphoria dies, 
it's just you're you hold your head up a little bit higher you can right. handle the next thing that comes even if that's like a personal tragedy or something that has nothing to do with adventure again it's building up those mental muscles right teaching yourself that you can handle things and you can see the best in outcomes that don't seem so great on the surface even adventures i've been on there are some that i'm like i don't ever want to do that again but i'm proud i did and i know i can handle things i didn't think i could totally i totally get that it's fascinating. Now, when is your book uh, going to be launched? Yeah, so it's actually in pre-sale right now for the Kindle copy, but it officially launches April 1st, which is okay. five years to the day of my divorce. Okay. Which is Can I say congratulations? Is that weird? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Congratulations. It's, so, it's very interesting because everyone, again, has a different story with divorce. But for me, it was a very oh, good thing. And yeah. I thought that it fell on April Fool's Day. It just, it was completely ironic and awesome. <laughs> totally. I um, I think that's incredible what you've been doing. And the fact that not only have you taken on your growth, but that you've documented it and really been introspective of it. Because there's a lot of people who face the fears and then years later, maybe they're a little bit more confident and, and whatever. They there's no introspection. There's no understanding. I, so I don't really know how much they, they learn from it other than that it had some good experience and positive experience. I think it's amazing that you actually have been using your experiences to make a difference with other people. And that's why I wanted I mean, to have you on the show. Cool. I really do. I want the book. I always say, yes, it's my journey, but I want it to help other people in their own journeys to realize that they can handle more than they think they can. Now, if people want to check out, if they want to check out the book, is it, it's going to be on Amazon? Yeah, it'll be on Amazon. It'll also be on my website, monicagoes.com okay. uh, for purchase. And they, can they check out the YouTube show as well on your site? Yeah, that's on my site or it's on YouTube at Monica Goes Show, which is okay. what I am across social media at Monica Goes Show. All right. And we'll, we'll put all that in the show notes for everybody as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was, it was my pleasure. And uh, for people who want to get a hold of you, do you have, is there a way to get a hold of you through your website or what's the best way for people to reach you? Oh yeah. They can contact me on the website or really any social media platform. I have a small addiction to my phone, so I'm pretty much available all the time. Okay. <laughs> or they can email Monica at Monica goes. Okay, great. And, and we'll also get all your social platforms on the show notes as well. Perfect. Thank Monica, you. it was a pleasure to have you on and um, you so you know, I, I wish you the best with everything. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been fun. This was all right. Take care. Thanks.